Welcome to the Capgemini Applied Innovation Podcast. My name is Joe Bojo. I lead Capgemini's Applied Innovation Exchange in San Francisco. Uh, welcome to today's discussion with our awesome guest, Sean Bayer from Stratum. And the orientation of, of this podcast is going to be a conversation to get to know Sean a bit, get to know Stratum a bit, and to talk about what's going on in the mobility landscape. Lots of things going on in the Bay Area around the future of autonomous and electric vehicles and shared and just an amazing amount of buzz and energy going on in this space. And I look forward to unpacking some of those things with, with you, Sean. And welcome, welcome, Sean. So maybe to get us started... Um, I've had the amazing opportunity of, of meeting you a few times, Sean, and, and you working with some of our, our, our clients that have visited the area. So I've, I've gotten the pleasure of learning a bit about your, your journey, your personal journey to now being the, the founder and CEO of, of Stratum. And I think it's a fascinating journey that, that really does uh, anchor a, a different kind of understanding as to how significant this mobility shift is. And I'd love to maybe as a starting point, if you can kind of share what what got you to the point of stratum and and you know this is not your first startup, so you know kind of tell us about your journey and and what inspired you to to ultimately do what is now stratum yeah sure first of all, Joe, it's great to be here I, I always love uh uh, hanging out with Capgemini and their clients and talking about innovation and entrepreneurship and the future of technology and how these things are going to impact the real world. So uh, it's always a pleasure and and uh, excited to be here to have this conversation. Um, uh, you know, I've had a, a very uh, interesting and, and, and fun and fascinating career inside the world of technology. Uh, I've been very, very fortunate. Um, you know, th this is essentially the third company and correspondingly the third different industry that I've worked on uh, in the past, call it, I don't want to date myself too much, but the, in more than 10 years, um, have been able to work on three different companies in three different industries um, that at, on their surface don't have a lot to do with each other. But, you know, as I've sort of looked back over that time period, um, there are some interesting parallels that come through those those different industries, those different innovative uh, companies. So uh, just to kind of orient us, I, I spent the first couple of years of my career, uh, roughly seven years building and working on an e-commerce product, um, shopping.com. Uh, it was a, a V1 internet play in the world of e-commerce, making things easy to price comparison shop, find out how much shipping costs, get ratings and reviews, easily purchase those products and have them delivered to your house. I spent the next seven years of my career building an advertising technology company. Um, if you watch those, uh, you know, videos on your, on your smart device or on your internet connected TV and you're, you know, constantly having to watch 15 second commercials that drive you crazy and sometimes you can skip them and sometimes you can't, you probably have uh, a little bit to thank for yeah, us at yeah, Adapt TV yeah, for, that. for that. Yeah. Sorry. Um, if it's any consolation, the publishers and the people who produce all that great content, uh, they rely on those ad dollars. You know, without that, without that stream of advertising revenue, you know, you wouldn't have this explosion of, of such great content, uh, available to consume, yeah. um, you know, in snippets or in, you know, snack size content. Um, so spend about seven years building an advertising technology, uh, company. Uh, that company was acquired by AOL. Uh, shopping.com was acquired by eBay. And then I've spent the last five years building a company inside the automotive transportation, uh, technology area. And so three completely different 
areas. I think the interesting thing that I that I can kind of get some perspective on now that I didn't quite have the perspective on then was that in each of those things, there was a fundamental shift happening in each of those industries. Uh, if you go back to the early days of shopping.com, there was no Amazon Prime. You know, the idea that you would buy anything other than books on the internet seemed like a foreign concept. Um, it seemed difficult. Shipping took too long. It was too expensive. Um, you couldn't touch the products. And so there was this feeling that e-commerce might be good for books and maybe CDs and maybe, you know, DVDs or something like that. But it would never be something that you could buy, you know, a mattress or furniture or art online. You just couldn't do that. You couldn't right. even consider doing that. Um, and again, that has radically transformed, you know, the amount of, the amount of awesome companies that are producing products that you could say 10, 15 years ago, I would never buy a suitcase online. I need to be able to touch it or I would want to buy a, I would never buy a car online. I need to be able to ride in it. Yeah. Um, those things have, have obviously transformed, but, you know, spending seven years in e-commerce um, and then being able to see it go from, there's no way anyone will do this to most people or many people choose to buy online as their first choice versus maybe trudging into a, you know, a retail store or a shopping mall or something like that. You know, if you fast forward through the advertising space, um, when we started building Adapt TV, there was no iPhone, for instance. There was no place to watch this internet content. There was YouTube. Um, but even at that time, Netflix was still mailing you discs to your house that you then dropped back in the mailbox and waited for the next kind of three or four episodes of whatever show you were trying to binge watch at that time. Mm -hmm. um, and we always said that was going to transform to a world where most of your content would be developed, would be delivered via an internet connection. And I think you've seen Roku and Hulu and YouTube yeah. and, you know, DirecTV Now and Amazon, you know, Prime Video and, you know, I can go on and on and, and HBO Go and HBO Now and Showtime Direct. And um, so there's been obviously a huge change there. In the world of automotive, when we began working on this, we said, you know, what's going to transform inside the world of in transportation? And, um, you know, we continue to believe that we're in the early, early stages of a big transformation in this going from a world where people own and operate their own vehicles, you know, and buy two and three of them and park them in their garage and have them sit there and collect to a world where they use transportation and only pay for what they need. And so I think that's the kind of parallel that sort of ties these yeah. three things together. But um, interesting to see it play out in multiple industries. Yeah, that that's such a compelling journey and it's it, everything seems so obvious looking back of how these things are going to play out and it is as you've kind of your your third time looking up that you know change mountain what are some of the core things that that you concluded about the future of mobility that that then informed the basis or for the creation of of what is now stratum yeah um i think the first one is you know and I'll, I'll temper this by saying, you know, we're here in the middle of San Francisco, in the middle of Silicon Valley, where sort of 
every day it feels like some impossible company is starting that there's just no way that technology will ever exist or could ever come to fruition. So let, let's temper it though from the fact that, you know, while we sit here in the middle of sort of innovation central, um, you know, we need to temper some of the expectations of will the cars actually fly? Maybe, but probably not for a long time, right? You know, are you going to be able to get a pizza delivered by a drone, um, you know, who's going to automatically recognize that you're hungry and then deliver the pizza to you and drop it off on your back door? Maybe in some Jetsons-like future, uh, but not today. Um, however, I think we would be unwise to say, hey, things are you know, things are never going to change or they're going to take a really long time. I think there's somebody famous who talks about the, you know, we we sort of tend to discount really big trends and we overestimate the short-term impacts. Uh, but I think we, at our own peril, don't pay attention to that long-term trend. And I think the long-term trends are pretty clear. I think, you know, younger people do not have the same nostalgia for car ownership that, you know, myself or you or others or maybe some of our listeners had, where sort of the keys to the car equaled freedom and equaled the ability to go where you wanted. Most of these younger people have grown up with a smart device, whether it be an iPhone or an Android device. They've grown up with Uber and Lyft, um, you know, and scooters and all kinds of ways to get from point A to point B that just didn't exist 10 years ago. And so those people, the the attachment to getting a driver's license and then buying a car so that they could get where they want to go, they don't need to do the first two in order to do the third. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I wouldn't say that that's going to be, you know, all of a sudden, and I think it's, you know, an overestimation to say millennials are not buying cars. The reality is millennials are buying cars, at least in, in many places. Yeah. Um, but do they have this same feeling towards I need to have a car and my partner needs a car and they need to have two cars that sit in my garage? We think they're going to take that trade and go the other way. Um, and I would say the, the, the key area that you might see it is it'll start on the sort of the fringes. Uh, a good way to think about it is you're a family, you currently have two cars in the garage. You're paying a lot, either in a payment or in a lease payment, insurance, gas, you know, fees, maintenance. Uh, when it's time to think about getting another car, do does that family sit down and have a conversation saying, you know what, like, could we deal with one car and use Lyft? Could we do one car and use Zipcar? Could we do one car and use a combination of Uber, Lyft, and public transportation. And I think that's where you'll start to see people say, I don't really want to sign up for a 36-month or a 48-month commitment to a car that when I, you know, when I don't use it all that often. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of one big trend. And we think, in general, we think people have taken the own-to-rent transition almost universally, almost universally. I mean, you could argue on the some cases, but this own to rent trend has played out in in dozens of industries over the last thirty and forty years. Yeah. Um, you know, give a, a a cogent example. You know, going back to our, our friends at Netflix, I remember going to a retail store to buy 
DVDs of movies that, you know, I really wanted to see. And I would go to the store. I would walk there. I'd purchase this disc that came in one of those like cardboard folders or something. I think they're now antiques or whatever. <laughs> um, you know, I would take it home. I would stick that that disc into a physical piece of like plastic and metal yeah. that I paid, you know, $299 for. And I would watch that video on my TV. Now, uh, my TV is most likely has some kind of smart connection to it, right? And I click a button on a remote. I choose the movie that I want to watch. I click the button. It says, do you want to rent this for $4.99? Or, and the number of services you can rent those from is, you know, there's five on my TV. Yeah. Um, and all of a sudden, I'm watching that same DVD without actually owning the product. Um, and I would say the same thing for music. You know, I don't, I, you know, I'm sure many of your listeners are Spotify or Amazon Music or Apple Music customers. You know, the number of discs they buy, the number of records they buy. Um, you know, records are an interesting thing, and I'm sure we can talk a little bit about that. But um, I think this rent to own, or sorry, own to rent transition mm -hmm. is really a powerful trend that we think is going to impact mobility. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The shift from ownership to access. So with with all these trends occurring and the uh, the dematerialization of 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 the industry and drivers wanting to have less uh, you know ownership, where does that create opportunity in the market? So if you put your entrepreneurial hat on, you start to see with some level of confidence and based on your your track record, you're you're probably seeing the pattern start to play out again. You know, two to you know two plus years out, what what was it that kind of got you back to the entrepreneur table to say I'm going to start something and 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 what is the something you started? What what sure. is Stratum? What do you do there? Yeah, so Stratum. I mean, you know, if you think about sort of Stratum, Stratum is a a backend technology platform that enables mobility companies to offer their consumer services in cities. Um, one thing that we we latched onto was. You know, we had had some experience in building a, a consumer-facing product. Um, really, really hard to do. You know, building a consumer product uh, is a very, very difficult skill. Cracking through, getting adoption, getting users, retaining them, building a gross margin positive product, very, very difficult to do. Our skill set is more on the B2B side. So supporting businesses. If you really look at AdeptTV, a company that, you know, you would never know right? No one's ever heard of it. However, you know, if you used any of those streaming services, mm -hmm. AdaptTV empowered yeah. a lot of those services. Yeah. Um, you know, at shopping.com, you didn't actually purchase anything from shopping.com. You bought it from Amazon or Target or Walmart. We were a B2B services player there. Um, and so we took the same approach here at, at Stratum. So what do we actually do? One of the things we realized is not only is it really hard to acquire customers in a B2C world, in the world of mobility, you actually need vehicles and those vehicles need gas and they need to have windshield wiper fluid and their tires need to be filled with air and those cars need to be cleaned on a daily basis or a weekly basis. Um, and so giving these, these, these customers of ours, these businesses, the ability to not have to worry about the operational functionality of their vehicles by using our software was a compelling entry point, right? So how do you, you know, if you, if you think about taking care of your own car, it's probably pretty easy. You know, you're one person, you own the car, you are responsible for taking care of it, 
even if you have two cars, right? One person, two cars, you can probably handle it. If I told you you're now in charge of managing 300 cars, those cars are constantly being used by people and they're spread out all over a city. Now the complexity becomes really difficult because you know, you've got to figure out, okay, I've got 10 cars that need to be washed. They happen to be in five different neighborhoods around a city. How do I, how do I actually do that? How do I even remember which 10 need to be washed and which, one, which 10 need to be charged? Right? And that's a, that's a complex problem, especially as you scale. Um, and so we built a software system that enables, brings some operational efficiency and transparency to taking care of these shared you know, vehicles, these vehicles of the mobility space inside cities. And that's, that's Stratum's core value proposition is we go to customers and we say, you've got a great product. You're bringing something to market in the world of mobility. Let us be your partner. Let us help you so that we can support you from a functionality perspective, make sure your vehicles are in great condition, and then you take care of delighting your customers. Gotcha. So if, if we play out a, you know, a scenario of the future, then in, in a, I would imagine in a relatively modest amount of time, there will be vehicles that are made specifically for shared fleets and probably are now, uh, but those vehicles becoming more and more uh, – having a higher range of autonomous functionality. And as they become more technologically advanced, the sensors and, and the, the infrastructure on the vehicle, you probably can't take that to a standard car wash anymore. It becomes more like, you know, other advanced equipment, you know, airline industry, et cetera, where you got to have a, a training a certification specialty, you know, mechanisms and applications just to be able to wash a car, let alone, service it and vehicles that are getting several hundred thousand miles per year on them. So it's, you know, it it, is you now kind of exist in two worlds in the world of automotive as we knew it and transportation as we knew it. And now in this mobility space and also two cultures where I grew up in the Detroit area first, you know, 10 plus years of my career were really working in and around big auto, you know, the, the the Chryslers and BMWs of the world. But from a software standpoint, I worked at a big software firms. So I saw a bit of the, you know, the culture of of traditional auto and their their viewpoints on what technology was was more its engineering. It's it's the the manufacturing process. It's the performance and R and D of the internal combustion engine and the the fit and finish of the vehicle. And it wasn't digital. It wasn't as we know it today. So as you, as you're seeing some of this world play out and you're at the front lines, how, how do you, when, when you go talk to, let's say it's a traditional legacy automotive company that's, you know, in, in the middle of this, this phase of, of their, their evolution versus you go to a, a next gen OE and, and, and I'm going to assume that next gen OE or, or, you know, fleet provider, autonomous player, you know, based probably more in an area like the Bay Area. What are some of the culture mindset differences between those two worlds? Does everybody now kind of conclude that, yeah, that this, this future is inevitable, let's get there as fast as we can? Or are there, you know, what, what, are, what are leaders wrestling with? Yeah, I, I would say um, there's definitely an inevitability to it. Um, you know, and I think 
both sides of this culture debate have had their, you know, have had their moment in the sun, I would argue, over the last couple of years, right? So if you think back to 2016, which feels like a lifetime ago now, but not that long ago in, in, in real, in reality, um, I think there was a, the pendulum had swung way over to the world of technology. Um, you know, most of the big, you know, legacy manufacturers really, really investing, really thinking about this problem. You know, if you listen to the pundits at that time, you know, we were all going to be riding around in self-driving taxis by now, right? They would be just floating around and taking us wherever we want to go. And I think it led to both positive and, and negative ramifications. Um, one, you saw a huge influx of capital into the world of the future of, uh, of automotive. Many of these self-driving car companies raising billions and billions of dollars over the last couple of years. Um, many transportation services being either invested in or acquired by large traditional older school companies. Primarily around this idea that the world is changing really, really fast. And if I'm not ready by 2020, I might be in trouble. Um, so the technology world had its moment in the sun probably over the last two or three years. I think over the last six months now, I think the old school automotive group has now, I think, coming in the sun a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think there's been some some feeling that, you know, okay, we were all really, really excited and everything was going to happen by 2020. And now the pendulum is starting to shift this way. And there are people who are like, we're not going to have self-driving cars till 2050. Now, if you put me on the spot between those two, I would think I would take the former. Now, again, I'm biased. I'm in the technology space. Um, but, you know, it's clearly taking longer to build these self-driving cars. They had some, obviously, some unfortunate incidents in the last year where, you know, where they had some some challenges. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, some some people actually lost their life in some of these things, which is something we need to fix in that industry. Um, but to sort of say the pendulum is swung all the way over and, you know, there's no way any of these things are ever going to come to fruition, like that's foolhardy as well. Um, but there is this sort of, I think both camps would, I would say there's an inevitability of this. Question is when? Um, and I keep coming back to the fact that, you know, Again, biased, having you know been inside the the technology world, but it's probably sooner than we think. Um, and again, I would temper it with, you know, it isn't going to be every car in every situation at every time. And you know, I wouldn't be the person sitting here saying, you know, everyone who drives a Ford pickup truck is gonna; those cars are all going to be replaced with self driving robo trucks or something like that's that's probably not happening but could i envision a a world in which you know inside a city like austin or new york or los angeles or seattle or san francisco that some small percentage of your rides become autonomous for sure yeah and probably not more than a couple of years away yeah um again it won't be every ride it won't be all the time but it's coming and it's coming, I think, in it will be a commercially viable product. My guess is within 18 months. 
but it won't have this kind of widespread adoption. Um, and again, if you go back to previous industries, right? Uh, if you think about smartphone adoption, people were like, everyone has a smartphone. Like it took 10 years for yeah. smartphone adoption to reach a critical mass where, you know, now I don't even know the percentage anymore, but, you know, more than half the people yeah. have some kind of a smartphone in their hand these days. Uh, but that took a long, long time. I mean, we went through the iPhone, the iPhone 2, the 3, the 4, yeah. the 5, the 6, the I don't even know what other ones they had in there, and all the Galaxy devices, and it still didn't reach a critical mass. Uh, and that's a 300, although now closer to $1,000 device, um, but that's a couple hundred dollars. We're talking about something that costs tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah. Um, um, I think the last thing I'd say on this topic that I think is interesting is these two worlds are increasingly, you know, coming together. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in it's very rare now where you have, well, I'm just an old school automotive person. Like maybe... 50 years ago, that person existed. And then there's people over here who are like, well, it's all about software. Uh, these worlds are really coming together. Even the software people realize, I've got to be able to deploy this software cost effectively inside a vehicle made of metal and rubber. And, you know, it's got to have doors. Like, you know, the software isn't going to replace those things. And if you're over here, I think the 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 automotive teams are realizing, I can make this car as cool looking as I want. I need the software in order to deliver the product that the consumer wants. Yeah. And so I think they're kind of coming together. Yeah, absolutely. The, you know, horsepower chrome and canary yellow only only drive so much demand and uh yeah that it, it when I was more more immersed in automotive 2007 2000 eight era at that that transition stage when tech was kind of booting up it, we, cloud and social and mobile were about to go on this you know amazing ride you started to at that point the large technology firms started to really penetrate into the the uh, auto oem space to start looking at the next generation millennial buyer whatever it was called in 2007 the next next wave of young folks coming up are going to want to have a different in-vehicle experience than their their predecessors. They're going to want to have a more digital in-vehicle experience. And this was, I was at Microsoft. This was pre-Xbox. So you know, Microsoft at the time was doing some of the first ever in-game advertising yeah. with you know PC gaming and the 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 era of of you know, domestic automotive was then starting to compete with. Uh, Asian entries into North America that they got faster and faster. And as they got faster and faster, they got more equipped to where they could get a, a new vehicle to market in sub one year, whereas, you know, domestic auto took a little bit longer. Yeah. And in the end, we started to realize that that's really a software issue. That's yes, there's certainly manufacturing issues, engineering issues, but you're not, you know, you're, you're on a lagging end of, of software uh, processes and methods and the digitization of, of how you get a vehicle to market faster, how you relate to a, you know, next gen uh, buying ecosystem. It's, it's fascinating to see where the industries come from. And one of the, uh, there, there's, there's something I learned, uh, I think from Institute for the Future here locally that has this interesting way of, of looking back before they look forward. And one of the things that they think about relative to future of auto is looking at how the technology industry, when we went from PC laptop to phone, 
if you look at who were the manufacturers and the players in the PC era, so who owned the OS? Microsoft, like outright. Who owned the CPU? You know, Intel. Intel. You know, who who did the manufacturing, etc. Now pivot to the next. Like none of the incumbents make it through that shift. Yeah. Or if yeah, and and it's it's ripe with learning because you know G- Google acquired Android. You know, probably the best acquisition in the history of tech. Right, a billion Brilliant. users of that for you know not a terrible amount of money. You know, can, almost same time Microsoft acquired Danger. Right. Yeah. Haven't heard a bunch about them. Yeah. You're not using. You know, don't you don't see Windows phones prevalent. Right. Although so. the sidekick was a was a was amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they have there. There's lots that we can you know talk about with Zune and and you know the, the, that yeah. era of their diversification. But yeah, I, I keep having this this sense that there's going to be new players that we haven't even seen yet in this mobility transformation. And it's those players that you don't see coming. We didn't see in that shift to sell and now the the, the shift to cloud, et cetera, you're seeing entirely new players. Like mm-hmm. Amazon shows up all of a sudden on this scene and they they tried to do mobile and got out of that. But now they showed up in cloud and whew, you know, yeah. dominant force dominant in cloud. Force. You know, you got the apples out there that are owning this beautiful, elegant, addictive experience with our, our technology you know, a lot of mastery and disciplines that are probably going to be really critical to whoever owns the mobility space. So all that is to kind of set you up for get your thoughts on who who's not in the game today that you could see coming in, in into this mobility space. Yeah, I think it's a great question. And as a sort of a segue into it, I think one thing that's been interesting to see is, and I think you, you sort of teased it a little bit earlier today about, you know, what does the car of the future look like right and and i and you know the features that were really really like game changing features before maybe game changing features but there are definitely some new ones where you're like now i can sort of see what this now i understand what this is about I, you know i had this in, this interesting experience i was in an uber uh indianapolis uh recently riding around i was on a, an hour long ride um Got in the car. The, the driver said to me, by the way, this is an internet connected car. Here's the Wi-Fi password. Now, you know, obviously you have a cell phone in my hand, but just a feature that I would have never considered. You know, here is a person who is driving people around all day and saying, my car is connected. Here's the username and password or here's the Wi-Fi network in my vehicle. Um, you know, I often get in these cars where the doors open themselves, right? Which is again a feature if you're if you're a family of three or four, a self-opening door on a minivan is like a, you know, it's it's okay. It's a nice feature. I'm sure it, you know, helps sometimes when you're picking up passengers. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. A self-opening door is like a feature that would have never existed. I can even envision if you think about every Uber driver today or every Lyft driver has a very expensive computer built into the car, which, you know, lots of companies have spent lots of money designing and building. And then at least one mobile device kind of hooked on with a with a cord that they're charging and, uh, you know, using some kind of a stand in order to keep up, you know, and see where they have to go. 
it's not a far stretch to talk to some of those technology companies and say, why don't we build the Uber app or the Lyft app or, you know, uh, uh, one of these other ride sharing apps into the vehicle itself? Mm-hmm. That way they don't even need a phone. Yeah. Right. Like this car is purpose built for ride sharing. Um, so, so anyway, I think the interesting thing will be to see how these features design themselves and how they evolve. Um, I, I keep coming back to this question of, you know, is the car, you know, if, if you believe that the car's design is going to be a critical aspect of success in the future in, in sort of a mass scale, um, you know, there are some natural players that you might say, these are people that are likely to win over the long run. Um, you know, you can think about Porsche, you know, whether you like fast cars or not, you, you sit in a Porsche and it's clearly a a beautiful design. It's like the Apple of cars, right? You can say the same thing for Mercedes. You could say the same thing. Uh, you know, I don't want to leave anybody out, but there's, you know, depending on your aesthetic, you know, those are cars that are beautifully designed. If you're say, Hey, I just need to get from point A to point B, you know, the Toyota Prius is not a bad way to get from point A to point B. It's really cost effective. Um, you know, it's a very comfortable ride. It's, you know, some might say it's not as cool as some of these other vehicles, but it does the job of getting you from point A to point B. Um, clearly, I think Apple has ambitions in this space. Um, you know, if you think about, they've taken a run at a lot of uh, a lot of the hardware products that we value. Um, you know, they, they essentially, you know, have taken a run at watches, which is a, you know, upended the watch world essentially. Um, and frankly, I wouldn't even call the Apple watch a massive success. And yet, you know, it, it has turned the world of watches upside down. Um, obviously you have a smart device, obviously your computer. Um, it's not a far stretch for me to say, could they get into the automotive game and build a product that is that brings you sort of that wow experience. Absolutely. I think they could play in there. Um, I don't think Amazon is somebody who we should say, well, they're busy with everything else they've got going on. Um, I think a lot of companies have said that and, and live to rue the day of underestimating, uh, you know, Amazon. I have a ton of respect for the team at Amazon and, and have consulted there in the past and, and know a lot of folks on the team there. Um, but if you really think about an internet company, um, you know, technology company, uh, clearly the leader in online retail. Now, relatively small as a percentage of overall uh, retail, but of online retail, you know, somewhere between 30, 40, 50%, at least here domestically, um, with ambitions globally. Um, The leader or one of the leaders in the world of cloud and a lot of these amazing startups that we talk about and that you see and they come through your office all the time, they're able to build their products in such a cost-effective and fast way because they're relying on cloud infrastructure, either provided by Amazon, Microsoft, or uh, Google, and in some cases, some other players. But Primarily, Amazon Web Services is a, is a behemoth. Um, but if you just stop there and said that's it for Amazon, you would be, you know, that's that's enough for one lifetime. Yeah. Um, they also produce Oscar-winning films and Emmy-winning television shows. Uh, they have a larger 
install base than most cable companies with a Amazon Prime subscription, which is a fascinating number. I mean, to think that there are more people with an Amazon Prime account than a cable connection is a is a massive uh, statistic. Um, and then continue to innovate. You know, uh, you know, Alexa and Amazon Echo and the voice controlled speaker, like massive implications regarding how you run your home and potentially even how you run your car in the future. Um, and then things like Amazon Go, where you can walk into a store and buy something without you know, paying, you know, without paying for it or even talking to anyone. So anyway, I, I, that's a long story on Amazon there. But to to say that they wouldn't be interested in this automotive ecosystem, yeah. I think would be a mistake. Yeah. The fascination that I have with them is if, if you look at that shift from PC to, to phone and you look at the competencies that were needed in the next era and you start thinking about the assets and the competencies that, that an Amazon has, the biggest one that shines out to me is they move so much stuff so fast, both in their warehouses with incredible levels of automation, as well as around the world, not just with, you know, 3PLs, but through their own own means. So if you're extremely proficient at moving things and you've got this other virtuosity to your business model of I can get you content, I can help you, you know, basically get anything you need. I can give you more convenience, more comfort, more care. And I can do that in a uh, model where I don't have to yield profit <laughs> in the marketplace that it, it becomes incredibly difficult to compete with. And yeah. you could envision a future where you've got a, you know, a prime transportation, you know, fee that you make every month. And in that it allows you to get to the eight most frequent places that you go to and, and odds are they're going there anyways, but in, in the movement of you, they're also going to take care of the movement of, you know, a handful of other things that consumers need or businesses need in that area. And and I think it's, you, you, you start looking at it from that standpoint, their business model just stacks one more layer exactly. to that, that flywheel of. Exactly. Of, uh, and I think there's a lesson in there, you know, that, I, and then, you know, that we continue to try to learn and, 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 you know, this is not only at Stratum, but obviously we're part of a larger public company known as car auction services. But I think the lesson there is, um, is not so much that they came up with Amazon Alexa, right? I mean, that's sort of interesting. But they are deeply interested in innovation and entrepreneurship. You know, this this early concept of two pizza teams that have have some freedom to go out and create new products and services is something that I think what's enabled them to, you know, over a 25-year period now, continue to wow people with new businesses. And I think there's a lesson there for no matter whether you work at a company that's 50 people, 500 people, 5,000 people, like us at Car, where we're 18,000 people, or you're at 100,000 people. If you can get people into small teams and give them the, the ability to innovate, the ability to build, um, you will be surprised at the results. Um, and and that's not to say I don't. What, what's been interesting about Amazon is there isn't sort of this cult of Amazon, right? You could, you could argue that maybe there's the cult of Apple, that you know the geniuses work at Apple and that's where they come up with genius-looking products. You don't sort of have that about Amazon. Um, sure, you know Jeff Bezos is an, probably an amazing entrepreneur and founder and executive, but really it's it's a it's something other than sort of the cult of the founder and entrepreneur. It's more like 
look, we have great people. We give them the room. We give them ideas and we let them go at big problems. And sometimes we win like, you know, Amazon Web Services and sometimes we lose, right? They had their first foray into mobile, you know, with the Amazon phone, obviously not a success. But that failure, and by the way, I don't think they're done in the mobile space. I wouldn't be surprised if they launch some new initiative within mobile phones or a mobile phone service provider. Uh, but I would argue that those failures around mobile phones is what led to, you know, Alexa and Echo yeah. and some and you know Kindles and Fires and all those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They, I think it's with with the work that we do, we we have this amazing opportunity to host a uh, hundred, hundred and fifty major companies a year that are typically the audience is pretty senior business leaders, technology leaders wrestling with some innovation, transformation problem set. And having done that for, you know, th- three plus years now, we can start to see patterns of what are symptoms versus what are root causes? What, what what's macro level transformation, and and you know against the the the, the sub transformation within the the company or within the departments, so you, you get all this data, and and we really kind of push on five things with with clients now, and 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 some of them are what we're we're referring to here with the the likes of the Amazons, but we kind of push on if you're in any industry today, you got to build new muscles to compete. And, and you've got to habituate the development of, of new muscle memory. And you, so therefore, you've got to practice. You've got to try certain things and you've got to create space and safety for the practice of these new muscles or new proficiencies. So that the five proficiencies that we really push on. So one is around how do you engage this new landscape? Because with the amount of innovation that is available to any company today, and you mentioned, you know, with with the Amazons, the Microsofts, the Googles, the Alibabas, they're putting these utilities out for the world to basically consume, and and most cases dropping a billion a month plus in research and development that just lights a fire of of amazing innovation that can be garnered, but you got to know how to navigate that space, anticipate Absolutely. what's coming next. If, if you're not using things like AI, you know, it's you know, it, someone else is, right? So they're, they're widely available. It's like external, you know, open source R&D. So figure out how to do that, you know, well, and then figure out how to bring it, the yield from that to bear in your company, which there's new tools and skills. You got to have a certain architecture capability. You got to have a certain ways of working like agile and you don't have to be, you know, Amazon or Google grade, but you've got to have the basic conditioning of how to do these things. One is on uh, how do you obsess about your customer? And the customer could be your end user as it, if it's an employee inside of the firm, or it could be the, you know, the end user of, of the, the Stratum app or, or, or uh, technology. But there's mechanisms and innovations that are there, deep abundance of innovation there, whether it's habit-forming technologies Absolutely. or neuromarketing or design thinking. But if you know lots, you can you can learn there, and those first three are really process, technology, and, and mindset to to a degree. But the last two are the ones that I think is where you start to get into where the Amazons of the world really start to spin the flywheel differently. And the last two that we we really think about are leadership and culture. And if you think of leadership, the way we think of it is what is the mindset of the executive leader such that he or she is really creating. Uh, an environment where you're going to be 
uh, challenging yourself as to how do I scale leadership through the entirety of the system versus I think the the Bay Area especially has a lot of leaders that are extremely intelligent and extremely hardworking. But what happens when that extremely intelligent, extremely hardworking person is is not there available, that the system hasn't scaled the leadership. So there's a yeah. lot that I think can be learned about how do I lead in an era with deep abundance and with significant transformation going on? I've got to show up differently as, as, a, as a leader and transform myself. And then the core of everything is the, the, the resiliency of the culture. Can you absorb change? Can you take risk or what we would think of as can I practice? Can I, ex- you know, the phone is an example of a, a very large, uh, you know, practice and experiment mm-hmm. that they, that they did. But am I creating in that, that kind of an environment and, and, you know, coherency of purpose and, uh, you know, a, a clear move in, in developing a culture that's different. So when you think of Amazon, they kind of check the box in many of they those do. areas. And for a lot of firms and, and companies in the world today, I think you could give a blank check that you can have all of the technology money can buy. You're going to struggle to make the transition into whatever dot next is. Yeah. You're big OE and you're going to move into this mobility space. It's not a money constraint, yeah. right? It's it, it's it's the human constraint. It's it's in, in our view, it's it's really these five muscles you've got to start to get practiced at. And I, I've always been, you know, impressed with how le- leaders like Amazon start to think of how do we distribute the the intellect and the skill base and and the knowledge and the the empathy throughout the entirety of, of the system while also being ridiculous on the technology and ridiculous yeah. on the operations and ridiculous on the customer. But, you know, it's it, it's this holistic, integrated kind of view that that, that you yeah. find. I think it's interesting. I mean, I, I've had the fortune of, of talking to some of the, the people you and clients you work with. And it's, you know, you know, first of all, I have a ton of empathy. I mean, you know, a lot of these, you know, look, a lot of these companies got to be where they are, right? They're, they're huge companies with huge cultures that have been around and established and rooted. Um, you know, they've built massively profitable businesses that, you know, have existed for decades, right? Huge amount of effort that went into that. Um, and then you show up and realize, wow, what got us to this point isn't going to carry the day in the future. And the reality is for many companies, um, without a real investment, and I and I would I, I would second your notion that it isn't when I, when you talk about investment, it isn't just the money. In fact, the money is probably the smallest part of the investment. But this investment in I need to be able to play in this new world, and I'm willing to do what it takes from a leadership standpoint, from a culture standpoint, from an investment standpoint, from a practice standpoint. Um, boy, is that hard. To do, especially yeah. if you've been around for a couple of decades. I, you know, uh, I mentioned Car Auction Services, the company that owns us, uh, and we're a division of them. Uh, and they're, you know, they're they're an amazing company. I've been inspired by seeing a company that, you know, probably could have just gone along, gone the way, and gone along with the the flow of things. Uh, that just isn't their leadership. It isn't their culture. They've they've really stepped into. How do we become a digital leader? Yeah. Right. And and not only stepped in, but made really big investments from an acquisition standpoint. We acquired a company called TradeRev, um, you know, who is actually disrupting our core existing business 
but you know, I think in in sort of a great leadership moment of if we're going to get disrupted, I'd rather be the one disrupting myself yeah. than being disrupted from a third party. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, again, that's more than just writing the check. Check is part of it, but you've got to have the leadership and the culture there to support that over a period of time. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, and I. I commend uh car and, and have gotten to know a, a bit of what car is like just through through hanging out with you a bit and and if if you if i think of my mental model of these five attribute areas or proficiency areas that we look for with companies the fact that they could anticipate the change far enough in advance to know that stratum and sean would be highly value added they will add to the resiliency of of the system of car and let's get after that because you know, we'll have better fidelity of what's coming next. Plus that that leadership mindset element. You're, I have to think, an interesting new free radical coming into that culture at a senior level to get those those other folks thinking about. We you've seen this play out, and 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 very few people can say that I was at the table for the you know at the pivot point for one industry let alone two two right and now this one's either i think this one is is has such a deep supply chain such a deep yeah. amount of you know multiple technology and and social forces kind of converging all at at, at the same time yeah. and you're bringing that to the table and they're open to you know, inviting that in and and thinking critically about you know what what are the next couple of decades going to look like yeah. so it's i think that's a, a really powerful you know, uh, uh, success when, when you can find that kind of, uh, uh, awakenness to, to the leadership. Yeah. And I think, you know, for, for some of your listeners who may not know car, right. Car is a, is a primarily a B2B company, which is where, you know, most of my experience has been. Um, so, you know, we're not a, a household brand that, you know, people think about all the time. However, you know, if you own a vehicle and you, or you lease a vehicle and you trade that vehicle in, um, you know, there's a wholesale market, a secondary market between businesses for a lot of these vehicles and, and car sold, you know, millions and millions of them last year. Um, and in the process of selling those vehicles, we obviously repair them and clean them and inspect them, make sure they're safe to drive so that the buyer who's buying those vehicles knows this car is in good condition and I can drive this car and use it for its second life, you know, going forward. Um, but if you think about the transformation happening in that industry, you know, first off, you know, you've got digital technologies coming to bear. It's just it's easier to get information and data and view vehicles without actually having to go and test drive them these days. And that exists both in the consumer market as well as in the B2B market. Um, and so we need to become a leader in this digital realm. Um, the second area is in data. You know, it's now possible to get really, really intelligent about how much our car is worth based on how far they've gone, where they've been. You have a ton of data at your hands. You know more about these vehicles than at any point in history. You know, increasingly, a lot of these vehicles in, in almost all of the newer models, you have onboard diagnostic data that's available real time, meaning we know how many miles are on the car. Nobody needs to even go look at that car, right? We know what the tire pressure is on those tires. We know how much fuel or how much battery level is available in those things. Um, and then if you think about mobility, right, uh, what do mobility cars look like? 
in the future, right? You could argue that they may be way, way more expensive vehicles, right? You know, you mentioned the sensors earlier. The amount of investment that's going to go into a self-driving vehicle is huge. The technology footprint of that vehicle will be huge. When that car, when it comes time for that car to be auctioned off, that could be a huge price tag on one of those vehicles. Now, you could also argue there's going to be a lot less of them. So there's going to be fewer that are higher priced. What does that do to a company that's involved in the wholesale market? And we're one of the leaders in the wholesale market. And so lots of interesting changes coming our way. You know, which OEMs become mass producers? Which ones maybe shrink? Which new players enter the field and all of a sudden decide they want to work with us in some new and innovative ways. Um, So all really interesting challenges as we sort of move forward. Um, But I think going back to your point, I think that leadership and culture and then building those muscles is really a critical aspect of of thriving over the next 10 years. Yeah. Thank you for spending the time here. You've been really, really generous with hanging out with us and some of our clients and having that that perch that we have where we get to see a lot of volume. And for every one of those 150 big corporates that come through, we get to see a handful of technology providers, service providers from around the region. So we, we got a lot of data points. And I think where you really stand out when you engage with an audience and you you kind of unpack a little bit of what the, the stratum offering perspective prerogative is, if 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 we give Sean an hour to talk to a client, fifty minutes of that hour will be set up on here's what's going on. Here's my prerogative as an entrepreneur. It's my opinion. I'll kind of own it. Here's the data points that I'm gathering. Here's where I'm starting to see the the canvas of the future and where I believe that there's going to be a, a, a market opening. And it's very engaging. It's very challenging. It's very stimulating. It's it, it's a conversation that you have with with senior leaders. And at that point, at, at the fifty minute mark out of an hour, then you introduce who Stratum is. They come in with a hard sell. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's very much not a hard sell. No, it's just like no, the, no. this: the the case has been made. That if 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 you're believing into the philosophy that I've you know, we've just talked about, it would stand to bear that you know that the service ecosystem as we start moving into this space is going to go through a heavy amount of rejiggering. Yeah. And 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 some of what you just mentioned about the the foresight that that car has and what you're you're endeavoring to do with it. Um, you know, the, the audience gets so much out of it, our talent gets so much out of it, and it just I think it's it's really really interesting, and and I, and I have to think it's if if anybody has a chance to to meet you, interact with you at an, an event or in the Bay Area, take that opportunity oh, because I think the it it's to in in my sense that's part of you the magic of how you've been successful in doing this is that you're you're advocating you're you're building community around hey this is what I think the future is going to be. I want you to challenge me. Yeah. I want you to kind of share what your prerogative is because you're seeing it from another data point. And and I think you kind of rationalize this model through lots of interaction. And it's not a, you know, it's not a confrontation, but I see it differently yeah. and I'm going to hold on to my thing. It's you do it in a very, um, very elegant way. So, well, I think one of the, other, I think one of the reasons why I love, you know, hanging out, hanging out with you, but also the, the team that that's there as well as, you know, your clients is, um, First of all, I hope I'm providing some value and interesting perspective about the canvas and what's happening. But I 
almost universally leave learning as much as I as I walked in with, you know, it's always interesting, you know, I think in several times we've, you've had conversations with, with teams that are primarily based in Europe. Really interesting to take, you know, this canvas of this is how I'm thinking about it. And then hear from people who are, you know, living and breathing the world of transportation, mobility, and automotive, but happen to be doing it in, you know, France or Germany, mm-hmm. you know, Austria or the UK and get their perspective and see where does this, where is this happening faster? Where is it happening slower? Yeah. Um, where is it going to have some local challenges? I think that's one of the fun parts about uh, meeting with the leadership teams that you guys work with. Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear you got you get value out of it. The reason we call it an exchange is, you know, as a consultancy, there's things that we do and there's things that we don't do. And if you build this community, this this exchange. That you learn pretty quickly that the messenger matters, right? You, you, you are a messenger that sits from a vantage point of you're you're not a consultant, right? You, I'm sure you consult, but but you know you're not in a consultancy, yeah. and and therefore the the frequency of your message resonates at a, at a different level, and you know by having this very open dialogue and, and typically the, the problem sets that we're seeing are, are, are deeply ambiguous and transformational. There's no obvious, I go do A, B, then C, and I, I route my way through this. They're trying to really orient and become more literate and self-aware. So, you know, through that dialogue, um, good good things can come out of it. So again, thank you for the time. Absolutely. Great fun, to be here. As always, I think we can call it a wrap. Thank you, Sean. And thank you to the listeners that joined us today. I look forward to your comments and to our next podcast.